I am Rich Devinney, and this is Win the Day with James Whitaker. You're listening to Win the Day with James Whitaker. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, this is the number one podcast to help you win the day every day. Here's your host, James Whitaker. Let's go! Hey winners, we're back and welcome to 2024. This is your year. Time to step up, be the best you can be and make a difference in the world. So how do we do that? Well, stay tuned for next week's episode where I'm going to walk you through the win method, a detailed three-step process to make 2024 your best year yet. And a big part of that is properly understanding the relationship you need to have with discomfort and adversity. Because when you've adopted the right mindset and something challenging you. You now have an advantage, a new perspective, a new skill, a new strength to positively change you. And if you're serious about big wins in 2024, which I know you are because you're listening to the Win the Day podcast, you need to go hard out of the gate because you don't want to be playing catch up later in the year. That's why today's episode from the vault with Navy SEAL Commander Rich Devinney is so important. And if you ask the top Navy SEALs who they admire most, Rich is one of the most common answers you'll get. In a career spanning more than 20 years, he completed more than a dozen overseas deployments and was intimately involved with the selection process that would take the highest performing SEALs and bring them into a team of their own for the most important missions. Since retiring from the Navy, Rich has taught leadership and optimal performance to business, athletic, and military leaders from organizations such as American Airlines, the San Francisco 49ers NFL team, Zoom, and Deloitte. His book, The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of optimal performance is an epic read about the attributes we need to unlock and the skills we need to develop. Long story short, this man knows what it takes to win. In this episode, we're going to go through the keys to optimal performance in all areas of your life, how Rich made it through one of the most grueling selection processes on the planet, the most important lessons from his 20-year Navy SEAL career, and how you can harness the right attributes for massive success in 2024 and beyond. Stay tuned for brand new episodes coming next week. And big announcement, the Win The Day Quiz is now available. All you need to do is go to winthedayquiz.com. You'll be able to answer a few thought-provoking questions and you'll instantly discover how well you're performing relative to your true potential. And here's the exciting part for our Win The Day family. As a fan of the show, you'll receive a personalized and absolutely free action plan to help you win the day every day. So take the Win The Day Quiz now by visiting winthedayquiz.com or click the link in the show notes and get your free personalized action plan. All right, strap yourself in and let's win the day with Navy SEAL Commander Rich Devine. Rich, great to see you, my man. Thanks so much for coming on the Win the Day show. Thank you, James. It's great to be here, finally. Yeah, yeah I know. We've been trying to tee this up for a while, haven't we? Four or five months, I think, but yeah, the consequence of living on different coasts. Exactly, think, so, yeah. exactly. Well, first of all, thank you for your service. I know you've had a you know a crazy career spanning many years all around the world, so I really appreciate everything that you've done and, and for being here with us today. Uh, to set the tone for what we'll cover, I was wondering if there was a particular realization. Was there one thing that stood out above all else from your entire experience? in the Navy SEALs and learning about optimal performance? Yeah, well, I would say it was certainly a maturation, but if there was one thing or the impetus of it all, I would say, was uh, going to SEAL training 
itself, right? Uh, you know, you go to go to something like that. And again, you know, SEAL training here in California, in San Diego called BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition slash SEAL Training. 85% of the guys who start don't make it through. And uh, and I remember going through that. And and on, upon graduation, I think if I remember correctly, our class started with about 170 people. We graduated about 38. And I remember uh, graduation day around that. I looked around at these 37 other dudes and I said to myself, how the heck am I here? Like, what, what, how did this happen? You know, because they seem just so stellar and, uh, and I just seemed okay. And I think that's, and, and, and what's interesting is that if you ask most of those guys, they were feeling the same thing. Uh, but that really started me down the road of really thinking about, okay, what drives performance mm. on all levels, but especially at these most raw levels, like mm. who are we at our most raw and, and what are those uh, things about human beings in particular? that drive performance in different domains uh, because it, it matters. And obviously only 15% of us made it through other guys, mm. other guys did not, but other guys, those other guys who didn't make it through they're they're excelling in other facets of life. They just mm. didn't happen to excel in the beaches of, of Coronado. So, yeah. so that was really the impetus. And of course, I think as I went through my career and continued to do uh, pretty interesting things and continue to, to uh, be part of more and more specialized uh, activities that, kind of imposter syndrome stayed with me, a healthy imposter syndrome. The kind of that question is like, man, these people around me are so much better than me. Why am I here? How am I here? It upped my game, of course, but it really allowed me to start thinking about and diving deep into this stuff. And I think so that's, that would probably be uh, the best way to define that maturation. Mm. There's that idea of like never judging a book by its cover. And I guess you couldn't help it yourself. If you, you help, help yourself, if you're looking around the other guys at Buds, you know, some really big, very athletic people, you might be instinctively thinking that these guys are going to absolutely crush it. Yeah. But as I've heard from, you know, other SEALs and things before, they're often some of the first to tap when yeah. it gets tough. Yeah, most don't. And, and it's funny, you know, almost everyone who's made it will say, that none of us would put money on any candidate starting SEAL training. Even those of us who've been in the community for a while, you just, the odds are, are not, are, they're, they're against you. And yeah. there are people who you could look at and you'd say, well, I, I you know, my, my, I would assume that that person would make it, but none of us would put money on, especially a hundred percent. It's just, you can't tell it's, it's all very internal, yeah. but it's really all about who we are at our most raw. And what are those attributes and qualities that need to be predominant to to perform and succeed in that again in that discipline in that domain because yeah. because that domain is very specific and there are other domains i always kind of say we're all we're all rock stars in certain domains we're all doofuses in other domains of life right yeah. uh, it just it just depends on you know picking the right one so you you can be a rock star yeah uh, in your book you mentioned how that it was always your dream from a young age to be a US Navy fighter pilot yeah. i grew up watching top gun you know 300 <laughs> times yeah. i wanted to be a US Navy fighter pilot how did you find yourself moving away from wanting to be the fighter pilot and all of a sudden signing up to be a navy seal yeah yeah well the, the fighter pilot stuff in fact it wasn't top gun just it was pre- my favorite two books growing up uh, as I as I entered into probably you know the the early teens were uh, Chuck Yeager's autobiography Yeager and then a book called The Right Stuff by uh, Thomas Wolf about the the early the earliest space program stages those are my two favorite I read them cover to cover many times and I I read those and I was like oh my gosh I want to be a pilot I want to be a fighter pilot and so that was the impetus and so that my twin brother and I were bent on that um, all the way through high school uh, and and even into college but it was really the end of high school the first Gulf War kicked off and and obviously it was a it was a very short i think 100 days or something but mm-hmm. but post that uh, there was an article i found in newsweek Mag- magazine that outlined all the different spec- special operations communities i think the the article was titled secret warriors or something and i remember looking through this and and that was my first introduction to the navy seals they had all the 
all the units. So they had the Marine Recon, uh, Rangers, SEALs, Green Berets, and things like that. And they had pictures of all these guys in different environments, underwater, snow, jungle. I would say, I would guess there were maybe 25 pictures arrayed around five pages. What I noticed, though, was distinct to me was that uh, out of that 25 pictures, like 20 of them were SEALs, but these SEALs were just all in different environments. Mm. And so the sea, air, land thing, and the fact that they're in the Navy, and I was like, and, they, and the, the other fact that they they made water, like they, they came from the ocean. The ocean was their starting point, and I loved the water. I loved the ocean. And I really said, wow, these guys are pretty cool. And I started reading a couple books about it, went to college, still kind of, and joined the Navy ROTC, still with like pilot in mind, but I said, you know, maybe this other thing. And ultimately, he said to myself, when it came time to select, I said, you know, I, I, I know I can be a pilot, but I don't want to wonder if I could be a SEAL. Mm, yeah, <laughs> and, so, yeah. and so that's what made me choose. And fortunately, it worked out. And you were a New, you were a New England boy, so you used New to England cold boy. water and sharks. That's right. I don't know about <laughs> sharks, but, uh, but I, I know that I was comfortable in the water. And to this day, I mean, I scuba dive, I scuba dive with my family. I am the most comfortable underwater. I yeah. mean, that is, I mean, I could literally, I have fallen asleep underwater, you know, but, uh, yeah. but I mean, that's, it's just, I just love that environment. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what does it mean to be a Navy SEAL and what do SEALs do better than any other force? Well, to be a Navy SEAL, I mean, I think, I think the idea of being a Navy SEAL as opposed to other spec ops units, the, the uniqueness is the water element. Um, it always has been the fact that the, the, our, the predecessors, predecessors of the SEALs were the Naval Combat Demolition Teams and the UDTs, underwater demolition teams. And, and they all came from the water. They were kind of born of the water and they, and they all made the water their, home base, right? Which is really intriguing to me because the the ocean is a hostile environment, right? The temperatures, the bone crushing uh, pressures, uh, and the ocean will kill you if you if you turn your back on it. And the fact that they made this environment their home was so audacious. And, and one of the things you heard about SEALs, and I even heard when I was in the teams, is that is that you know, in if you're if if you're if the enemy's in pursuit of you, always go to the water mm-hmm. because no one is brave enough or stupid enough to follow you there. And that just for me was really cool. It's like if I if if I'm making this hostile place my home because the because people won't follow me there, that was cool. And the fact that add to the fact that I was just comfortable in the water, I think that's I think that's uh, kind of what it means to be a seal. Yeah. Um, and and again, some of the other spec ops units certainly they they operate in the water. They do some diving and stuff. But that was the only unit that really is is born of the water. I really, the frogman was really what I loved. Yeah, it's interesting because yeah. there's people who come from like landlocked areas who don't seem to have a great deal of water exposure, yet that adaptability attribute is probably the one that you, that you mentioned yeah. in your book where all yeah. of a sudden they can um, not only get that exposure to it, but they can actually then thrive and then become a SEAL. I, I, you know, and, and rest assured, there are some Navy SEALs who don't like the water, <laughs> right? I mean, and so this is this is the other p- part of your question, what Navy SEALs in fact are, which is what I defined them even when I was a, when I was a, a SEAL, was it wasn't about the shooting or the diving or the skydiving, we are masters of uncertainty. We are individuals and teams that can drop into deeply complex environments and start performing. And so, and so, really, the superpower. And I now I put now I begin to put all a lot of military units in this category, not just seals. But the superpower is that you can look at something that scares you, look at something that's deeply uncomfortable or challenging, and step into it proactively, and then begin to move through it mm-hmm. proactively. And so I think that's the uniqueness that I really found. And I think if there's anything that that Navy SEALs are or Spec Ops are, uh, they are that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not really about, oh, this this mission or this big mission or whatever, or they're known for this. It's You put any one of these guys into a complex, unique, ambiguous uncertain environment and they will start to figure it out because mm. that's just how we're 
were designed. And it just, we kind of, I think we, we enter into training with some of the basic elements of how to do that unconsciously, of course. Uh, and that just gets hyper-developed as you go through training. And of course, combat just super develops them. What's the easiest thing to train a aspiring SEAL and what's the hardest thing to, to train them? Well, so now we're getting into training versus, edu- you know, you know tra- again, I, I guess skill about, development. Yeah, over tra- yeah, attributes. So, so yeah. training is really for skill development. I mean, yeah. that's that's how I would define it. You train for skills. Uh, the the the, um, the Joint War College uh, had a great quote. Uh, you uh, you train for certainty, you educate for uncertainty. And so training for certainty means you're training for skills. I think the education for uncertainty, that's when you're diving into attributes. And so, so I think the most difficult attributes and I wouldn't even say the most difficult because I guess the guys who make it through are the guys who have a preponderance of the required attributes already. You don't, you can't you can't develop those things during SEAL training. You have to have them at least a a, a level of them when you show up day one. Otherwise, you're not going to make it through day one. Uh, so so given those attributes, you get you you are then able to train in whatever discipline the SEAL teams require. Here, here's a funny story which I. I tell a lot, and and it actually occurred before I got to the teams. I went to Navy SEAL training in '96, so it seems like forever ago. But uh, and back then, one of the first things you had to do when you showed up to SEAL training was you had to swim 50 meters in a pool. So jump in, swim 25 meters to one end, 25 meters back. The story goes that this kid shows up. And this happened apparently before I got there. The story goes this kid shows up. It's his turn to swim. He jumped into the pool, sinks right to the bottom, and starts walking across the bottom of the pool to one end. Walks across the bottom, pulled back to the other end, comes up. He's gasping for air, nearly drowning. The instructor looks at him and says, what the hell are you doing? And the kid who's trying to still catch his breath looks at the instructor and says, I'm sorry, instructor. I don't know how to swim. And the instructor pauses for a second and looks at the kid and says, that's okay. We can teach you how to swim, right? And the whole point of that is that the instructor knew that this kid had the qualities, the attributes, whatever you want to call it, to show up to Navy SEAL training, one of the most elite maritime units on the planet, and he didn't know how to swim. He had everything inside of him that we needed for him to be a Navy SEAL. Teaching him the skill of swimming was going to be the easy part. That's uh-huh. just easy. So, so I think uh, I think given the appropriate attribute combination, you are then set up to learn all the requisite skills that you need to mm-hmm. learn in that in that environment. Yeah, I'm picturing Goggins when you yeah. <laughs> when you <tell> <laughs> someone yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, um, there's a lot of people who do things these days like 75 hard, just something yeah. to give them a challenge for like months at a time. Yep. When you go through SEAL training, obviously it's bringing out a lot of those dormant attributes, the the things about yourself that you don't know are actually very valuable assets, and how resilient and adaptable you might be. Do you think people should figure out their own version of something like that so they can start to unearth some of those attributes rather than just trying to focus so much on staying in their comfort zone? I totally think that. And I think I love the 75 hard. I know Andy uh, Frizzello who runs that, and I love that program because it, it really allows someone to get uncomfortable in a series of disciplines. Uh, and I think that's absolutely essential for people to uh, begin to grow. You have to step out of a comfort zone. Listen, growth is uncomfortable. You can't grow without being comfortable. It's a, it's a, it's a prerequisite. And so, and so anything that allows you discomfort is going to help you grow, um, regardless of what it is. And so I would always encourage someone to look at those things that make you uncomfortable and practice that. In fact, it's funny you should say that. I was just talking to a, a young, a young man who's a, who's in college right now. He's an ROTC and Navy ROTC, and he wants to be a SEAL. He's an aspiring SEAL. And he asked me, Hey, what can I do to prepare? And, and it's a, it's an interesting question because you know, in, in, in SEAL training and BUDS, you're going to get really cold. You're going to have to run with logs and everything. Cold is usually the worst. Cold is what gets most people. And so a lot of 
aspiring buds candidates uh, and maybe even folks who think they you know who are who are past their prime and they wish they could have been seals they wonder if they could do it um will expose themselves to colds uh, over and over again to see well I'm, maybe i get to get used to the cold you'll never get used to the cold and one of my buddies says it's like getting it's like practicing getting kicked in the ball so you're, you're, gonna, get, you're gonna get kicked in the balls anyway <laughs> you might as well not practice it right so um so but what i did tell him was hey practice doing things that are uncomfortable and that could be anything it could be that girl you've wanted to talk to and you've been nervous go up and talk to her right that's enough you're, you're stepping into uncomfort hmm. to discomfort you're stepping into um uh to challenge and i, I think those are anytime you can pick something to do, you're going to exercise that muscle. But then there's one more factor. And the, the, the other factor is uncertainty because, because there are certain disciplines of discomfort that aren't uncertain. And I would place a lot of physical disciplines in this category. I mean, you know, going to the gym, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be challenging, but there's something certain about that, right? Um, the more environments of uncertainty you can find yourself in and navigating through, that's some real training as well, because navigating through uncertainty is a whole nother level of being able to step into challenge stress mm-hmm. and fear because that's when the fear comes from the stress comes in so not very scary going to the gym depending i certainly say they're, they're, if you're just starting it could be right um but if there's fear involved you've added a whole nother level to that to that challenge and i think mm-hmm. that's very very healthy yeah developing the habit of getting out of your comfort zone and thriving on uncertainty yeah and stepping into fear yeah yeah uh so all the all the aspiring seals they do that training knowing that they have the excitement of the seal career afterward how would you feel going and doing seal training again now do you think it's something that you could do just as easy as you did the first? not that it was easy do you <laughs> yeah, think that yeah. was something you could you could pass uh now or you feel like now that that sort of prize and that uh that award over the horizon is gone yeah do you think that that would be very like much more difficult for you to do now well so i always say mentally i could go through it no problem i think any i think most seals could physically i would die after day one i mean it was just I, my body you gotta, you gotta remember seal candidates are mostly between 18 and 22 years old i was 22 and i went through your body is literally a it's like wolverine you're healing so fast your testosterone so so uh so yes i could i would be i would love i would be curious to go through hell week or seal training again but you know my my body would not make it. <laughs> so we'll do a so, follow-up episode. Rich right. doing. Yeah, it ain't gonna happen. It ain't gonna happen. So, but yeah, I, yeah, I think I think I think most of us would say, sure, I could do it again, and and I might be curious to do it again because there's some nostalgia there. Might it be easier? Sure, because now you know the game, and you know you could probably go through it now. I could probably go through it now, and even as they're torturing us, be like, oh, I totally know what's going on. I totally know what this is doing, and blah. blah. So there's a there's a there's a knowing is you know uh, or na- naming is taming type thing going on there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the physical aspect does matter. Yeah. Do you, do you, uh, is it like, do you think that the Navy SEAL training in terms of being able to get the best candidates and get them as prepared as possible, do you think it's as close to perfect as you, it could possibly be? Or are there sort of one or two changes that you've thought about that you would implement if you were in charge of that? Yeah. It's funny you should say, I was, I was just, you know, I know we're here in LA. I was in San Diego yesterday. I was, I went to the Bud's compound and one of my close friends is actually working there. And so he and I were talking, he was showing me around and showing me all the changes. And what I will say is that no process is perfect. And I think the, I think the perfection, if there is a perfection in the process, is the fact that they are constantly looking at the process. Mm-hmm. And they're constantly asking themselves good questions about the process. The, the Navy SEAL training today is slightly different than it was when I went through. Um, and that's a good thing. And it's not easier and it's not harder, right? Well, it might be even harder, I would say, you know, but, uh, you know, because I'm not one of those dinosaurs who says, oh, the hardest one was when I went through. 
it, it is quite possibly harder today than it ever was. Uh, but I know that they are now looking at it in a, in a much more diligent way. They're constantly asking themselves the right questions. How do we get the right candidates? Who are the right candidates? What are we doing that could be uh, detrimental to getting the right candidates? Uh, and I think that 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 consistent introspection and looking in the mirror and asking those questions is what I found the process has done for years and years and years. And And right now, the people that I see who are in charge of the process, I have... 100% confidence that that's going on. So, What about um, when you become a SEAL and you're out on a mission and bullets start flying and all that? How do you train for people to become when that situation, when they're really encountering that for the first time? Well, so so again, you don't train. You, uh, you, you, you assess and select those people with the attributes to be able to calm themselves, to be able to understand and manage their autonomic system in a way that allows them to be to be calm through that. Now, what you do train is you train in the skills that you'll need in that environment. But those skills could be very basic, like shooting and moving and communicating, right? Uh, and what happens and what 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 units like that often do is you train those skills to the level of mastery. In other words, you train to the level of you don't have to think about doing them. And it's not because necessarily, well, they have, they're Navy SEALs, they have to be masters. It's because once you once you get to that level where you don't necessarily have to think about it anymore, you've just freed up your mind from a lot of space or given a lot of space to now navigate the uncertainty of the environment, right? And that's really what it is. When the bullets start flying, the number one thing you're going to be doing is figuring out what the hell is going on right now mm. and what's what's the next move? Where are people? You're, you're figuring out the environment. The shooting back, the moving and all that stuff, that's secondary. And so you train so that those skills are secondary so that you're freeing up your conscious mind to actually deal with the uncertain mm. environment. Are there are there core components of achieving mastery or is it very is it a very different approach depending on what skill that you're actually trying to learn? Well, that's a great question. I would I would I would say that it's uh, I would say the components probably would probably uh, be dependent on what you're trying to master, um, but uh, but I think uh, at a base, at, a, at the, I think at a base level, what you to master anything, you have to take it down to the fundamentals. Uh, and so, whatever the discipline you're trying to master is, you have to figure out what the fundamentals are first, and and get g- really good at those, and kind of use this old kind of the the uh, the old adage in the SEAL teams: smooth is or slow is smooth, smooth is fast. You start very slow and start very deliberately and you take the time and you put in the hours to to slowly develop this muscle uh, so that you get smooth and smooth ends up being fast. And it's it's a really interesting when you're in the business of gunfighting, right? You you recognize that that the 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 key to success in a gunfight is being slow and smooth and very deliberate, right? And you you sometimes you watch, I watch these old westerns and I wonder what it would have been like to kind of do one of those these duels, but you know that the people who who won those things when they used to do it were the people who were just very slow and deliberate. Uh, because if you sp- if you go too fast, you're going to miss, you know. Mm-hmm. And so so I think it's that it's it's the process of just doing that helps manage your your thinking in a way that mm-hmm. actually is very conducive to success. Mm-hmm. You shared some really interesting stories in your book. It's, it's one of the things I love. Actually, the opening of your book is one of the most gripping that I've ever had, you know, especially <laughs> when you become a parent. There are things like what happens if your kid goes missing in like a train station or all these other things. It's you, you think that you might be 
confident and calm and proactive in a situation like that. But when it can happen, I mean, it can be it can be crazy. I was on a plane once flying from LA to Brisbane in Australia, and I was sort of like half asleep, and I heard a passenger on the other side of the the cabin, sort of my same row, but on the other side of the plane. I was on the window on the other side, and. Someone yelled out, I heard screaming and someone yelled out, oh my God, he's going to die. And I've sort of woken up to that. And I thought that, um, you know, I've done a lot of work to overcome anxiety and different things like that. I thought that something like that, I would actually be quite calm and composed. I was absolutely terrified. I know it's all, it's basically pitch black because I had all the lights out and you just have no idea what's going on. It turns out, what you find out a few minutes later, someone was actually having an epileptic fit and they were trying to get someone as quick as possible. But your your brain starts racing to like, we're in a, you know, we're in a plane here over the ocean, goes down, there's absolutely nothing we can do and, and we're all going to die. It's, yeah. it's, it's very hard to stop um, your brain from racing. And that's the stuff that it, when you wrote that book, as a reader, you can feel it come across. And I think that's really important with the stuff you do. You need to transport someone to that moment so they can start to understand some of those attributes and how they might um, respond in that situation. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say you bring up those those examples. I tried to write those examples so that when I when I wrote them and read them, I would be nervous. Uh, so 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 the examples in there are meant to be nerve wracking, even for someone like me, because yeah. it's like, okay, what what the hell would I do? Uh, but yeah, I think I think it's it's when we're in these situations of deep uncertainty and the fear response starts to rise, the autonomic response starts to go, because we're literally what's happening neurologically is our frontal lobe is starting to go take a back seat, and our, we're starting to get to an autonomic overload, which means our limbic brain takes over. Now we're acting without thinking, which which in most cases, that's not good, right? Mm-hmm. In some cases, it is. I mean, when we touch a hot stove, we want our, our our body to take over and remove our hand without having to think about it. But in most cases, especially today, in today's environment, you want to be able to think through these situations. And so, and so it's really about understanding that when we get into these, how is my autonomic response happening? And can I begin to manage it in a way that brings my frontal lobe back online, allows me to start making decisions about my environment. And that's really some of the secrets to mastering uncertainty and moving through that type of stuff. We had William Branham on the show, 26-year Navy SEAL, and he yeah. spoke about he's much more comfortable in a gunfight than he is speaking yeah. on stage. Yeah. Did you have a similar a similar thing when you sort of moved away and started doing consulting to the corporate First world? Of all, I love Will, by the way. Yeah. He's a great dude. <laughs> um, uh, I, I I tried to keep it in context, and I would say certainly, well, here's a funny story. You know, I started, when I got out, I started working with my buddy Simon. I was with the Barry Waywiller Institute, Leadership Institute. So I was I was quite literally put in front of people either speaking or teaching. I was not comfortable doing it. But I knew uh, in, in choosing to do that that I was actually stepping into something that I was uncomfortable. It was a very deliberate decision for me was I said, you know, I'm – I'm, I'm going to, I'm interested in writing, so I should probably get used to being in front of people. And so, and so I began to do it and, and kind of step into it every time and every time. And I started to, you know, inoculate myself, understand, okay, what, mm-hmm. how does this feel? What does it mean? Can I get better at this? It was, uh, it was as I was getting more comfortable, I was, I was not at the beginning stage, probably in the mid stage and I was getting ready to give a talk and it was a big crowd. I think it was a couple thousand people, pretty big for, you know, the biggest I had sp- spoken to. And the organizer prior to me going on asked me, uh, pulled me, you know, when we were talking, he said, hey, are you nervous at all? And I said to him, I said, well, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, is anybody going to be shooting at me when I'm on the stage? <laughs> and he looked at me, he's like, no, of course. I was like, well, I got nothing to be nervous about, right? Um, and uh, it was really meant to be a joke. But what I recognized <laughs> is I was really just reframing, you know, mm-hmm. and what I was saying to myself, I was like, listen, I'm not going to die up there, right? No one's shooting at me. I can basically, I can look at this, I can frame it in a way. Um, but what we have to recognize, and I want to make sure people understand this because I get this a lot. Well, you're a Navy SEAL. I mean, how can I, 
you know, you're just your levels of, of courage and, you know, fear inoculation are just so how can I even relate? Fear is subjective. Okay. And the physiological results of fear in our system are identical to every human being, which means Will and I can be in a gunfight, okay, and we can literally be feeling less fear than the kid you just asked to stand in front of his or her class and give a presentation, right? That kid could be experiencing 10 times more fear physiologically than Will and I in a gunfight, right? So so we have to understand that fear is going to be subjective, but when it starts to show up on our system, physiologically, there are reactions in our system. And it's really about understanding what those reactions are and starting to map ways to deal with those to start stepping into it more effectively. What about the fear of a situation? I forget what it was, but there was a story of the Delta operator who was in a terrorist attack in a hotel, something like that, but he was there by himself. Like, what if you're in a situation where it is a gunfight, where you don't have the the team around you, mm-hmm. everything's just gone pear-shaped? Yeah. How do you manage that fear response? I imagine that for maybe everyone, maybe I'm wrong on this, um, that you would still have a significant fear reaction to it. Well, you do. Um, and again, if you're talking about a Delta guy or a SEAL or someone who's been in these environments, fear is not your... You're actually leveraging your fear more than reacting to your fear. And, fe- and, the, and again, the fear response is going to be muted automatically because what happens in our brains is that when that type of stuff happens, the first thing our, our brains will go to is, okay, what do I need to do? Mm-hmm. You know, what is the action in this moment? We think about that immediately. And, and by doing that, we're actually, we're actually muting this autonomic response. Because again, what we're doing is we're engaging our conscious mind, which is, which is, preventing it from going back into the, <laughs> we're going to the back seat. So we engage our conscious mind by starting to ask questions about our environment. What can I do? We start, we start to act. A lot of us also have a little bit, what I call a higher temperature level, right? I talk in the book about courage and kind of the, 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 the courage switch and, and where our autonomic arousal begins. And I usually use boiling point as, as the, as the example. I mean, we say boiling point that, you know, that degree level could be normal, right? But, but some people start, moving into autonomic overload before boiling point, you know, at maybe 95 degrees. Other people, it takes to be, you know, it takes 220 degrees before they reach boiling point. Um, and I think, I think a lot of us, we tend to have a little bit higher of a temperature of a restat setting um, because typically when the environment begins to go chaotic and descend around us, we're the type of people who begin to slow down. Our, and, and then this is funny because my wife would joke, you know, I, I live in Virginia Beach and and uh, we've, you know, where we live, I have a Navy SEAL who lives across the street. I have a Navy SEAL uh, who lives uh, down the street to the right and one down the street to the left. And I remember um, my wife saying, man, I'm so glad these guys are in the neighborhood. And I said, why? I said, because if anything bad happened, I could always go to them and they act like you act. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, as soon as something bad happens or, or, or chaos ensues, they immediately calm down. You guys immediately calm down. You start working the problem. And so I think this... This Delta operator, I mean, I would imagine there was fear. But again, we have to understand fear generates some biochemistry that's that's very useful. I mean, there's a lot of adrenaline. There's focus, right? And so we, it, it allows us, I mean, it's designed to allow us to survive. And so a lot of people are afraid of fear, right? Mm-hmm. But but fear used effectively and, um, and metabolized. You are at the heightened physical level right there. I mean, this is why you see people in really stressful situations do superhuman things mm. you know our body's being flooded with some very powerful biochemistry that's going to allow us to do some very powerful things if we're thinking at the same time you're talking about someone who can do some real heroic stuff mm. yeah. something that you and i both do in our, our work is 
talk about that the quality of your life is directly proportional to the questions that you ask. Mm-hmm. What you just mentioned there is it coming up with the right questions to solve the problem and figure out what can I do? Yet there are people out there, you know, things like finding the gift in, in adversity or mm-hmm. how have I grown from what has right. happened to me for resilience, which I know is one of your attributes. And um, yet there are people out there who never even ask themselves any questions. And in fact, what they're doing is giving themselves when they react to that fear response, they're giving themselves answers for a question they never even asked, you know, mm-hmm. like, I'm going to die in this situation or, or whatever it might be from anxiety. The ability to ask the right questions in any given situation is directly proportionate to how successful you can be in life and, and business. And it sounds like on the battlefield too. 100%. And, and I think one of the reasons is because it puts you in control. By asking a question, it puts you in the driver's seat. You are no longer reacting. You are proacting, right? And um, and so regardless of the, I mean, it has to be the right question, right? Mm-hmm. Why does this always happen to me is a reacting question, right? Um, but a question like, hey, what, what can I control right now? What do I understand right now? And again, I, you know, and I know you talk about it too. Our brains are question answering machines. They're designed to do that. We do it unconsciously all the time. Our brains are looking at something. We might say, okay, bouncing off our hippocampus and our occipital lobe. And it's saying, hey, have I seen this before? In what context have I seen this before? Our brains are constantly asking questions. When we deliberately place a question into our conscious mind, our, our brain has no choice but to give us answers. That's just what happens. It just answers the questions. Sometimes the answers are ridiculous, right? But they still come up with answers. And so, and so anytime, I think, I think asking questions and taking control of being, of the ability to ask questions in any environment, that is the trick. And I think those people who do it constantly and constantly and constantly now get to a point where you do it unconsciously. And yeah. so, and so you don't even think about the question you're asking, you just start acting and yeah. the, and, but, but, Rest assured, you're acting because you've unconsciously asked a question. What can I control? What can I control? What can I control? Focus in, do it. Next thing, what can I control? Focus in, do it. And I think that's probably the the key. Do you consciously make the decision to win each day, like at this point in your life? Or is it such a habit now that you know you're going to go and just get after it no matter what happens? I don't consciously. And again, uh, you know, I. by the way, I love win the day. I love that whole philosophy. Um, I, I, however, I you know, for me, winning is, it, it implies someone else losing sometimes or something losing. There's a win and a loss. But when we talk about the way, when we talk about winning the day that you, the, in the way you talk about, um, part of me understands that loss is good, you know, and sometimes the the day won't feel like winning. And I know we're going to, we're going to turn it into winning, right? But, <laughs> but the idea is sometimes you, sometimes you got to take a loss. Sometimes you got to take a, a kick in the teeth. And sometimes the day is not going to feel like you want it. Sometimes the day is going to feel just pretty lousy. Um, now you can reframe that and i.e. win the day, right? Um, but uh, but I think uh, I think there's a there's a power and a, and a utility in accepting and and autopsying loss because mm-hmm. that's that's where we grow, right? We grow from those lessons, and it's and it's again it's neurologically true. You know you know one of the one of the things that neuroscientists will tell us is that. Is that when when we create neural net- networks in our brain, when we learn something, um, those neural networks and the myelination that happens um, is accelerated by ten or twenty times when three things are present. Those three things are uh, novelty, intensity, and focus. Okay, so when you have all those three things, you learn things very fast. This is why when you um, uh, when we learn the alphabet, we'll never forget the alphabet song because there's a there's a tune to it, you know. But it's also why it's the difference between being told a, a stove is hot or touching a hot stove. When you touch a hot stove, there's immediately novelty, intensity, focus, right? Bad things that happen in our lives, the times we lose are novel, they're intense, and we're deeply focused, right? Mm-hmm. This is why we learn more from hardship than we do from success. Uh, and so I think, I think 
part of winning the day, which I know is your philosophy, is even those days that doesn't feel like wins, you can actually turn it into a win by understanding that this loss is actually good and I'm going to use it. And so so that's probably how I approach it. Yeah. Um, I also, I think for me, I think setting these these horizons of success is really critical to the accomplishment of any, any goal. And so, and but those horizons have to be uh, subjective to what feels right for you. Yeah. So in some cases, you know, hey, I'm going to get to the end of the day. That's the horizon. Some cases, I'm going to get to the end of this this hour, you know, or this 10 minutes or this 10 seconds, right? Some cases, it's I'm going to get to the end of this week, right? And so I think whatever that horizon is for you, Again, it has to be meaningful to, for it to for it to actually give you the reward that it's designed to give you uh, is is also effective. Yeah, we've had Janine Shepard on the show before. She's a six time best selling author. She'd actually qualified for the Winter Olympics, but was hit by a truck while she was riding her bike beforehand. Amazing, absolutely phenomenal. Probably the best example of resilience and best story I've ever heard. It really is phenomenal what she's been able to accomplish. She's a walking paraplegic and, wow. and everything. And she talks about this concept of loosening up your idea that your life is supposed to be perfect. And I love that. And what it reminds me about from your work is how you talk about this idea of embracing our humanness. Can you talk a little bit about what it means to sort of embrace our humanness rather than always striving so hard for this impossible ceiling of perfection in everything we do? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the way I describe uh, us as human beings is like automobiles. And I, I use the car, the movie, the car, or the movie Cars, right? And it's not because my kids made me watch it a thousand times. <clears throat> it's actually a good movie. Um, <laughs> you made them watch it a thousand yeah, times. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but uh, uh, but I like I love the analogy of us as cars because we're all automobiles. We're all humans, but some of us are Ferraris, and some of us are Jeeps, and some of us are SUVs. And, and there's no judgment there because the Ferrari can do things the Jeep can't do, and the Jeep can do things the Ferrari can't do. And so I think what what it really comes down to is can we lift our hood and figure out what we're running with? Because if I'm a Jeep trying to run on a Ferrari track, now I know where my friction points are. Or I'm, I know enough to say, oh, shoot, I'm going to go get on a Jeep track, right? So so I think this is where that analogy is. We're, none of us are perfect. We all have our own unique set of things that make us who we are. And at, just like automobiles, I mean, the Jeep and the Ferrari, two separate, two, they have two two distinctive tasks Neither of which, because they're apples and oranges, could you define as perfect, right? And so, uh, I mean, what is the perfect vehicle? You know, that's also subjective, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think I think it's a great, great uh, analogy and a great uh, concept to understand to say, hey, you know, we are not – and oh, by the way, perfection is the lowest standard in the world because it's, it's literally impossible. You can't do it. And even our universe is not perfect, right? It's all imperfect. But it's, it's the imperfections that have made – us who we are and those little nuances and things like that. So, mm-hmm. so I think we should bask in our imperfection. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, was there a Navy SEAL mission that you were on or that you were overseeing that epitomizes everything that it means to be a SEAL or the attributes that you include in your book? Well, I, you know, I, I, it'd be it'd be hard to name one, um, and I probably couldn't talk about <laughs> any one anyway. Um, but I think you know, in any mission, uh, in any mission, military mission, but we'll just use the SEAL mission. Uh, you're always planning those things and setting them, uh, putting them together in phases. And, and typically, the phases are you're going to uh, you're going to insert, which means you're to get in somehow. You're going to infill, which means transit to the target. You're going to have the actions on the objective, which is the actions on the target. And then you're going to exfiltrate, which is move away, and then exfil, which is move off, right? So, so it, you know, just to kind of lay that out, you could say uh, you're going to insert in a helicopter. You're going to get out of the helicopter. You're going to patrol into the target. That's your infiltration. So you're insert, infiltration. Actions on the objective, you're hitting the target. Exfiltration, you're walking out to the 
wherever the helicopter landing zone is, and then you're extracting with the helicopter, right? And I think I think that process of planning a mission epitomizes the way the Navy SEAL brain works, right? What we what we do is we basically we chunk if we have a massive problem to solve, we chunk it into meaningful pieces, right? And then we solve each piece to the extent that we can. Now you can never solve each piece to perfection. In other words, I can't plan my insert phase or my infill phase in a way that's like I kind of know exactly what's going to go on here and I'm ready and I'm ready for everything. I can say, hey, during this phase, if this happens or if this happens or if this happens, maybe the top three things, then we'll do this, this or this. After that, if something different happens, we'll just figure it out on the fly, right? Mm-hmm. So in other words, we get ourselves to about 80%. And then the, the next 20% was like, well, we'll just figure it out. We have that confidence, right? And I think that epitomizes the, the, the SEAL mentality is, is in any huge task, how can you break it into meaningful chunks, uh, plan or address those meaningful chunks to the extent of your ability, but be uncomfortable not being perfect in it, right? Um, and then just move in and just do it. And, so, and, and, and then and once you're done with that, right? You're you're now on the next thing. In fact, a, a quick example: I was with a, a couple seal buddies of mine a couple weeks ago during, during the holidays, actually. <clears throat> and we, uh, it was just some of the things we did together was we did what were called hey ho jumps, which is high altitude, high opening. You're jumping out at about twenty thousand, twenty two thousand feet. Um, you know, usually nighttime, pitch black. You have night vision, all that stuff. You're you're getting out. You're pulling your shoot. You're counting to four and pulling your shoots. And now you're going to be flying somewhere for a while. And then you're landing and then doing your thing. And we were all kind of thinking about this because we we're we were actually we were actually reminiscing as to the adrenaline rush that something like that gave us. It's like we you just it's this just you can't. It's almost hard to describe that rush you get, especially when you do it with people you really care about. But all of us were, were kind of remarking the fact that you know, and I think my buddy said, "Hey, when I was standing on the ramp getting ready to jump, what do you think the one thing I was thinking of?" was the one thing i was because we had we stand on the front we have this whole mission we had you know a whole mission in front of us to go do what's the one thing i was thinking about both of us knew exactly what it was what it was and that was nail the exit that's the one thing which in other words get out of the plane in a stable position that's it right that's the only thing you're focused on once you do that what's the next thing well now pull my chute okay what's the next thing now that's done okay what's the next thing okay now i'm going to make sure everything's good okay what's the next thing it's it's all and so and so the mind the, the seal mind and I think the master of uncertainty mind takes these enormous things and says okay what's the f- thing I'm going to focus on what's the most important thing in my life right now and for us standing on the edge of that ramp it's nail the exit <laughs> okay once that's done cool okay what's the next thing open my chute okay cool what's the next thing and you just go through that step so I think seal missions are inherently di- designed I think most military missions are designed this way but the way we we plan them are inherently designed to just take it down into steps and you go step by step by step by step. And you have some contingency planning in there thrown in because, you know, some things you want to just make sure, okay, if this happens, we want to make sure we have some resources. But other than that, you're like, hey, I'm still throwing myself out on an airplane. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm still doing something that's highly uncertain. So if something that happens that's unplanned, then I'll just, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out in the moment. And that final 20% is the example of decentralized leadership that the SEALs are so famous for, isn't it? Like the autonomy to sort of make your own call on the fly yeah. and do what you've got to do. Yeah, well, that, that, that allows it, right? Uh, the, 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 the final, the 20% of uncertainty can exist and can be addressed because you've allowed for decentralized women. But I, I call mm-hmm. it something different. I call it in the book, I call it dynamic subordination. And what that is, is that uh, the, the organization, the team understands that 
challenges and issues can come from any angle at any moment. And when one does, the person who is closest to that problem, the most capable, immediately steps up and takes lead mm-hmm. and everybody follows. And then the environment shifts, right? And then someone else steps up and takes lead. I was an officer in the Navy SEAL teams. I was pretty much in charge of every single combat mission I was on. It didn't mean I was always being supported. In fact, most of the time I was opposite. I was supporting other people. I was supporting my breaches, my snipers, my assaults. Sometimes the environment would shift and they would be in support of me for a, for a moment, but then it'd shift again. And so I think that's really what decentralized command is. It's this dynamic subordination environment where every team member understands you are a part of an organic living element and you are literally on key to either step up or support or step up or support. And there's zero arrogance. It's all... It's all um, humility in the sense, and again, not humility is like I'm bending my knee and all that. Humility says, like, hey, I, I am, you can be very confident and still humble. It's like, I know exactly why I'm here and what I'm supposed to do. And when something happens, I'll do it. If I don't know what's going on, I'm immediately going to step back and let someone who does know in. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to support that person. And then the environment shifts. We do that. So I think that's how that that ha- that's how that manifests in, in life. Yeah. Did, did the involvement in countries like Iraq and Afghanistan very little water compared to a lot of other countries. Did that change the preparation and the mandate of what the Navy SEALs do? Um, it, uh, it, it, it changed it to the extent that we wanted to make sure we understood the environment mm-hmm. and the environmental conditions and the tactics that we needed to apply in that environment. Um, but, but the baseline, uh, the baseline grit gumshoe attributes uh, only just allowed us to dominate the way we did in the environment. And um, and in terms of the water, yes, yeah, certainly the community, in fact, uh, we saw ourselves get away from the water for for, for many years. Uh, but the community has readjusted and the communities, as, as those those conflicts draw, drew down and as SEALs came back out, the, the community has gotten back uh, into the water a little bit more uh, because that's really our, our bread and butter. Yeah, back to its roots. Yeah. 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 You were tasked with putting together a group uh, of the most elite out of those who are already SEALs. Can you share a little bit about that selection process and what you were looking for specifically and um, maybe a broader scope of some of the missions that those types of people would be involved in? Yeah, and I would say most, I would say, I would say very specialized. I wouldn't even say most elite because because even this very specialized command had a specific mission to accomplish and it didn't mean that the folks doing that were any better than the folks doing the other missions, right? So, but the very specialized commands, uh, what we what we were charged to do, uh, and the assessment selection that I ran was we were uh, we had to get candidates from the re- from the other SEAL teams, and and the candidates had to come with recommendations and 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 good reports, obviously. But they'd come to our own selection process, and then we put them through this nine month selection, and we got about a fifty percent attrition rate, um, which is okay because every any uh, assessment selection program implies attrition. Uh, what was not okay is that we weren't effectively describing why guys were attriting. We were saying stupid stuff like, well, they couldn't shoot very well or they couldn't do this very well. And that was just not sitting well with them. It wasn't sitting well with us. Our leadership started saying, uh, and even the outside leadership said, hey, what's what's going on there? And if we could, we couldn't give them any more than, well, they couldn't cut it. Then, you know, so it wasn't, it wasn't a good place to be. And so when I took over, I was kind of t- tasked with, hey, Rich, can you start articulating this a little bit better, and so is that to sustain morale for when they go back, so they don't a little bit, slow? kind of everything. Yeah. So there's, there's first of all, we want to sustain the morale for the person to go back and say, hey, listen, you're, you're, you're a good seal, right? There's nothing, you know, you have, you have a lot to give. You just didn't have a couple of the things that it took to, to do this specialized mission. Um, it helped with relationships between the command and other seal commands, uh, but also I think just um, it, it helped us understand our process. I think you know. There's it's unconscious genius is okay up until a point, all right, and, and, and until a point where where you're actually getting questioned and you actually have to provide some 
some cogent answers. And so, uh, and so I was asked to start thinking about those cogent answers. Uh, and that's where I got into the attributes work. And I really said, well, we're the problem I think in our inability to explain is we're looking at performance myopically. We're looking at it strictly based on skills and performance is so much more than skills. And we know that because we've been through basic SEAL training. I mean, the, the, the kid of the pool is a perfect example. But another example, I'd been doing this work, you know, when I, when I embarked upon this work, I'd been a SEAL for, you know, 10, 11 years by then. So I'd been on a ton of, you know, hundreds of combat missions. And, you know, again, in BUDS, you spend hundreds of hours running around with, you know, boats on your head and hundreds of hours exercising with 300-pound telephone poles and freezing in the surf zone. And at the time, when I started looking at this, I said, well, I've been on hundreds of combat missions. I've been on thousands of training evolutions. Never on one of those did I carry a 300-pound telephone <laughs> pole, right? Um, or a boat on my head, right? So what they were doing to us in BUDS was not training us in the skills to be Navy SEALs. They were teasing out these attributes. So so what we were doing in this specialized training, now, a little bit different because in the specialized training, we were, in fact, teaching skills, okay? But to articulate why certain guys weren't effectively able to do those things, it wasn't about they couldn't do the skill. There was something behind that. What were the attributes we were looking for? And I think that's really where there's the distinctiveness between that command, other commands, even SEALs, Green Berets, Army Rangers, Marine Force Recon. There's there's a lot of similar attributes, of course, but there's going to be distinctions and differences. And so I think I think the distinctions come in the attributes required to do those specialized mm-hmm. Uh, missions and, and and roles. I noticed that resourcefulness was not one of the attributes that you have written down there. I thought it might be in cunning, and I had a look at cunning, and yeah. it was one of those ones where I love that, by the way, that the, hum- uh, the sense of humor one in there, I think that's so great. Yeah. I wasn't the class clown. I was definitely a podium finish, but I, I love all the different attributes that you've yeah. got included. But resourcefulness specifically, is that are there components of resourcefulness that, are, that make up the other attributes or where does resourcefulness Yeah, I, I love that. And I, I, I would argue um, that, and I haven't thought about this, so I, I, I could be wrong here, but I would argue that resourcefulness is a result of certain attributes. I think resourcefulness is a result of open-mindedness and cunning and um, and uh, perhaps uh, even adaptability, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I think, I think, I think a lot of times we get, we, we, get traits that we describe people with and we think of them as specific attributes. Grit is a grit is a perfect example. A lot of people talk about grit as a singular thing and it's not in the book. I make it, it's a category and grit is a result of attributes kind of blended and catalyzed and stewed together to, to make up grit. And I think resourcefulness, resourcefulness would fall into that category. Mm. Uh, how do you prepare good people to be great leaders and can everyone, is everyone capable of being a great leader? I think uh, I think it's a great question. Is everybody capable of being a great leader? Uh, no, <laughs> I wouldn't say so. And and but here's why. Uh, and it's because leadership is not a position. Leadership is a behavior. There's a difference between being in charge and being a leader. One is a position. One is a behavior. And by the way, I always joke. You can't. Whereas you can self designate as I'm in charge or be put in charge. You can't self designate as a leader. You can't call yourself a leader. That's like calling yourself good looking or funny. Other people decide whether or not you're good looking or funny. Other people decide whether or not you're a leader because other people decide whether or not you are someone they want to follow. Okay. And if you if you call yourself a leader and you look back and there's no one following you, I got bad news for you. Right. But these behaviors are what cause other people to to say that's someone I want to follow. And and we saw this in the military. I saw this in the military. Even in micro, even the SEAL teams, there'd be someone in a hierarchical position above me. And I'd be like, I wouldn't follow that person anywhere. You know. Meanwhile, there's someone over here who has 
no hierarchical position whatsoever, or, is it, or even lower on the hierarchical chain than I am. And I was like, I would follow that person to hell and back. And it's because of the way they behaved. And these behaviors stem from these attributes. And these attributes, in the book, I, I talk about these attributes, empathy, decisiveness, uh, selflessness, authenticity, and, uh, and accountability. Those are attributes that lead to behaviors that people typically say, I want to follow that person. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and so not everybody has a preponderance of those attributes, which means not everybody is necessarily going to be looked at as a great leader, you know, mm-hmm. now, whether or not someone, I guess, I guess anybody could at some point in their lives have someone else say, you know what, I, I think of this person as a mentor or as a leader. So, so I, so I guess I'll modify my answer. Anybody could can be a leader, mm. but it's only because someone has said, "I will follow you." I choose to follow you. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and I guess leader isn't necessarily, you know, a leader can be a bad thing if you're a leader leading someone to a negative outcome. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, but again, that's that's up to the person who's following. I mean, yeah. again, it's not who's to say. I mean, there there are there are tons of people in history, some people in current present day, who you look at and it's like. I don't know why people look at that person as a leader, but mm. they're still looked at as a leader, right? Yeah. Because and it's their choice. You know, it's not my choice; it's their choice. So it's a very subjective uh, designation. So people have asked me, "Are leaders born or are they made?" And I say they're neither; they're chosen. Mm. Uh, and uh, and if you want to be chosen as a leader, you probably need to execute some of the or or, or behave some of these attributes that that we talk about. Who do you want people to be once they finish reading your book? Uh, I would love for people to uh, to be introspective about their performance. Here's, you know, one of the things that I really got fascinated with as I as I kind of went through this process, and certainly after coming out of the Navy, um, was this idea of who are we? And really, more specifically, who are we at our most raw? Because we always hear the old adage, like, it's, it's the true, it's in the worst times that the true us shows up, right? I'm always like, oh, who's the, who's the true us? And of course, I went through a career of the most raw all the time, right? So I got, I was fortunate to be put into an environment, put myself in an environment where the most raw was just on display. Um, and what I think is if, if the, the, if people can come away with this, these attributes start to speak to who we are at our most raw, which allows someone to say, okay, now I know why I behave the way I do. In fact, and more importantly, now I know why I behave the way I do when things are at their worst. Okay. And if someone can have that, uh, have that realization. I just think that's great. If they, if they can read the book and start examining and building that introspection for themselves mm-hmm. and understanding their own performance, gosh, I, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a real cool thing for yeah, me. Yeah. It's huge. A lot of your work has been about identifying the the winners as quickly as possible. Winners being the ones who are going to get the job done or yeah, you know, yeah. whatever the job is. Uh, if you're sitting down with a management team of an organization, which I know you've done a bunch, how quickly can you determine how successful someone will be and what type of things are you looking for? Yeah, the, uh, the process we go through with organizations is we first help them figure out what their attribute list looks like because the attribute it's much list, easy for them to, to tell them, give themselves well, well, some of that well, feedback. Well, <laughs> well, it's actually not easy. Well, we have to give them, we have to give, we give them the tools. We give mm-hmm. them the process to do that. Right. But, but what we have, what we explain to them and what someone will, will learn reading the book is that the, the list of attributes required to be a great Navy SEAL team is going to look different than the list of attributes required to be a great sales team or a great teaching team or a great, you know, uh, surgical team, whatever that is. That list of attributes is unique. And so what we'll do is we'll go into organizations and say, okay, we have a process we'll take you through to allow you to figure out what that master list looks like. Okay, now you have a template from which you can say, okay, now we look at the the, the positions in each, each position in the organization. We can say, okay, from this master list, what are the attributes that it takes to do this job, to do this job, to do this job? 
Now you have something from which you can evaluate performance, Mm -hmm. Uh, not only evaluate performance, but more importantly, hire the right people because so many organizations spend so much money, waste so much money on the wrong hires. And it's often because they're hiring for the wrong things. They're seeing skills, they're seeing stats, they're seeing resumes. Oh man, this person is awesome. They have all the things they need to have. They've never seen that person's attributes. And so therefore that person's going to come in as a rock star, quote, quote, um, and then when the environment, either they either they actually turn into the a-hole, right, or the environment shifts and these people descend into chaos, right, because they just don't have what it takes. They have all the stuff on paper, but they don't have what it takes. So we help organizations figure out what that attribute list looks like, apply it to positions in their organization, and then apply it to hiring processes and performance evaluation processes so they can determine that. Because who, you know, I can, I can tell you exactly what it's going to take to be a great Navy SEAL, but I'm not going to be able to tell someone, you know, what to be because to be a great, great accountant, right? I mean, so... So I think uh, there, but what we do is we have a process that allows them to help them figure that out. Mm. Yeah. Um, Where does attributes link up with purpose and how would you specifically help someone find what they're put on the planet to do? Yeah. um, Well, I have to reference my good buddy, Simon Sinek, (laughs) because he really, he really uh, helped solidify the importance of this why. And I think, uh, I think they, he says it so beautifully, and, and his, his organization has such a great process by which someone can help find their why. Um, the why is going to be the, the, the North Star, I guess. Um, and so, so I guess where I fit in, where I'm really passionate about is, okay, once you have that why, how do you get there? And what are those tools that you have available to yourself to get there, right? Because the why, if the why is the destination, or at least the, the ideal to which you want to strive to, um, how can I adjust my performance and monitor my performance so that I can constantly be living that and getting there? Mm-hmm. And that's where I come in, right? So so if you want your why, <laughs> check out Simon, <laughs> right? Um, once you figure that out or if you want to figure out how to get there, you know, that's when then we, we, can, we can help. The attributes begin to help. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of people like Simon and Andrew Huberman, who I know you're really yeah. well connected with as well, uh, you've taught them so much. What have they taught you specifically about optimal performance or just other areas of, of life? Oh, my gosh. Do we have another couple hours? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me start with Simon. I was just with Simon this morning, so he's fresh on my mind. Um, Simon, uh, Simon has taught me uh, so much about tr- looking at ideas and simplifying them in a way that other people understand. He, he's, he's brilliant at it. And, um, and it's really you – can, you can have – you can have great ideas all day long, and no one's going to listen to you if you can't articulate it in a way that people understand and and relate to. By the way, and so he is he has always helped me simplify. In fact, even when I was writing the book, I call him and say, "Okay, here's what I got. Like here's here's how I'm mapping this out. Uh, what do you think?" And I remember good great example. The difference I, I talk about the difference between skills and attributes. And I have like three things on the skill side, three things that when I first called Simon, I had ten things on the skill side and ten things on the attribute side. I remember reading that to him. He's like, okay, there's too much. <laughs> He's like, there's way too much. You got to simplify that. And so seriously, I mean, he, he, I mean, and that's why I got it down to three things and that's all I needed. you know, so, so he's taught me so much about that, about that process. And it's so important because, because there's a lot of great stuff out there that a lot of people don't have access to because it's just too, too, it's too complex, right? They just, it's not articulated in a way that that's complex or that that's simplified. So that's really where he's helped. Uh, besides being a great friend, a great mentor, uh, he's helped me even when it got out of the Navy. Uh, Andrew um, is almost the opposite um, because Andrew and I, when we first started talking, he began to map 
complexity onto some of the ideas that I have. And by complexity, I mean neuroscience, biology, and physiology. He's like, and, we're going back to 10. <laughs> we're going from three to 10. <laughs> that's, that's right. But, but I loved it. And I loved the idea. And when we, when we first started to get together, which was like, I think, five or six years ago now, um, we were talking about fear. And, I, and he was like, how do you guys, I mean, what, what do you do when you step there? So we talk about stepping through fear. And here's what I do. And he's like, okay, I think this is what's happening in the brain. And we spent hours, he came to Virginia Beach, and we spent, we spent a lot of time mapping this out. And so, so Andrew has been such a, uh, an influence uh, in helping map some, com- I love the complex stuff. And actually, I deliberately left some complexity out of this book, because if it were up to me, it'd be way, I mean, I just love going complex, but again, I'm listening to Simon, hey, keep it simple. Um, and so Andrew has really helped me th- that way and, and shown, uh, and shown, hey, he's, 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 he's ignited and reignited my, my real interest and desire in taking some of these concepts of, hey, this is who we are, this is how we behave at our most raw, and say, okay, wait a second, this is why. It's because dopamine is getting released here, and serotonin here, and, and you have adrenaline here, and norepinephrine, which is the same thing, but um, acetylcholine, all that, it just maps it on, and because this and this, so much so that, I mean, it's mind-blowing, right? And any of us who listen to his podcast, you know, you sometimes you have to turn it off after 10 minutes, it's like, okay, <laughs> let me just absorb what I just yeah. heard for a second, right? So, yeah, so one, in, in Simon's case, he's really helped me think simply about things and, and how to design that. And Andrew's helped me add explanation and complexity. Yeah, what an amazing balance. Yeah. I love yeah, it. I'm very, very grateful, very fortunate. Yeah. yeah. You know, in your book, something I really loved was the way that you describe resilience. I thought that that was absolutely fascinating, specifically how it differs from durability and how the most resilient people um, are the ones who can actually just get back to that baseline yeah. as quickly as possible. Yeah. Well, yeah. resilience, it, it often gets conflated with perseverance, mm. um, but it's not. I mean, resilience, you can think of as a rubber band. Am I stretching the rubber band? Is it resilient enough to go back to its to its, to its uh, original uh, shot, uh, size, right? So resilience is the ability to get knocked off baseline, whether it be good or bad, and get back to baseline. You know, perseverance is the ability to kind of power through. Mm-hmm. And that, again, is, a, is an element of grit. But again... Resilience is an element of grit as well. So I, I wanted to make that distinction because because I think a lot of times some of these terms are either conflated or misinterpreted. And I just I again even with even with language I like to go down to the very elemental. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm. uh, a lot of people essentially surrender their life when they allow something that happened to them a long time ago, like a divorce, to occupy their thoughts and they stay very negative. If you were working with someone who wanted to be a leader to sort of lead them, lead their friend out of that situation of that negativity, what, yeah. what would you um, encourage them to do? Uh, recover. Uh, and, and the reason why is because trauma in any form, whether it be mental, physical, whatever, uh, you have to effectively recover from that trauma before you can reflect in a way that allows you to grow from it. And, and by recover, it means you get to a point where you are, if it's mental, you are no longer emotionally triggered by it. If it's physical, obviously, we know you, your muscles are healed enough so you can do it again. Um, but recovery is really the key. And the, the, the trick is, though, recovery is going to be it, it, the length that the length of time it takes to recover is is varied vastly depending on the level of trauma, what it is. Um, but recovery is the key. And I would also offer that anybody who who needs to recover, uh, i.e. needs to get a position, just let's talk mental mental or, or emotional trauma needs to recover to the to the to the degree that that the event doesn't trigger them so that they can actually reflect appropriately they may not be able to do it themselves they may need help all right and 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 oftentimes do and so that's why there are people out there who can help so so if you are someone like this or you have a friend like this encourage recovery encourage help with recovery mm-hmm. because it's only when we can actually start looking at those events 
objectively that we can start interrogating them objectively because once you interrogate them objectively you can start asking questions like okay who can how can i blame myself like what can, what blame can i put myself uh, what can how can i blame who else can i blame you know what mm. what did i do right what did they do right what did i do wrong and you can you can and the answers you get to those questions in an objective state are going to be vastly different than the answers you get to those questions if you are still emotional right yeah. um but the ones that you get from an objective state are going to allow you to grow yeah remove yeah. the emotion yeah ask the right questions ask the right but you enjoy something <laughs> yeah sometimes you need help to do that right you, we can't all do that on our own um yeah. and again if it's significant get help get help get help yeah absolutely yeah. uh last question rich before we move into the win the day rocket round on your best day what's an affirmation that you would write on a flash card that you could show yourself on your worst day um on my best day i uh, i think it's the key it's that if i were if i were to point to one key to success in all domains um it's the ability to delay gratification mm. um uh if we if you can delay reward delay gratification that is a key to success to say hey i am going to do the hard work now and it's going to suck so that i might enjoy a reward later yeah um that's what I always want to remind myself of. And I think that's uh, often the downfall of a lot of people who can't succeed is they cannot delay gratification uh, so that they can push through. Yeah, there's that Muhammad Ali quote. I used to have it up on my wall, actually. It said, don't quit, suffer now and live the rest of your life as a champion. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, mean, I mean, again, I guess Bud's is like that. I mean, say, mm-hmm. you know, you know, quitting, you know, quitting is, is very singular, it's very pinpoint. And when you do it, you ain't coming back, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so be very careful about that. Uh, it's, yeah, delay gratification. Yeah, love yeah. it. Well, let's now move into the win the day rocket round. Ten questions with some quick answers. You up for this one, Rich? Yes, of course. Let's do it. Number one, uh, what quote inspires you the most? There are many, uh, but one of the ones that, often, uh, that that I love is, there's tons of Einstein quotes, but one of the Einstein quotes I love, and uh, excuse me if I misquote it, but it's, um, everybody's a genius, but if you try to teach a fish to climb a tree, he'll look like an idiot. Um, And that speaks to this idea that we are all automobiles, right? And we all have specific engines. And so, so you can't ask a Jeep to run a Ferrari race, you know, it's just not going to happen. And that Jeep will look like an idiot, you know? So, uh, so I think that's, that's one of my favorites and it speaks to really the work I do. (laughs) Yeah. It's such a powerful metaphor. It really is. Yeah. Uh, Number two, morning coffee or evening wine? Morning coffee. Yeah, I'm not a wine drinker. So I'm a beer drinker. I'm trying to keep cut down, but I, I'm not a big wine drinker. Yeah. So. Number three, what's one bit of advice you would give your 18-year-old self? Pain is coming. Yeah, no, uh, you know, it's a bit of advice. Um, uh, enjoy enjoy it. Enjoy it every, every, enjoy every moment. Because, I, again, people have asked me, hey, would you, what would you change your... And honestly, I would never say anything to myself because I'm a real believer. Well, I guess it's factual. Like, you know, I am here today because of every single thing that happened to me all the way back to, to the day I was born. Right. So so every mistake, every every success, everything I did right and wrong got me to where I am today. And I'm enormously grateful for today. So so just enjoy it and let it happen and do the same thing you did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Number four, what book do you gift the most or what book or what book impacted your life the most? Um, different answers to that one. I think uh, you know, the book that impacted my life the most was a book that I got when I was in high school called The Key to Yourself by Venice Bloodworth. And it talked about kind of a very, kind of a little bit metaphysical, which is fine, but it talked about this idea of law of attraction stuff, um, which I really, I really enjoy. And I know there's, you know, it's a little metaphysical and I, I'm, I'd love to see some science behind that. I don't know if there is, but, uh, but I just, when I read that book, I began to think differently about goals 
and outcomes and things like that. And it really changed my life. Um, the books I read and I, lo- I read, I try to read a ton of stuff, but I love uh, Harari stuff, Sapiens and Homo Deus. And I just, I love the way he examines and, and extracts the human experience in a very like, Hey, this is why this, and this is why this, and look at this. And we're just animals. And I, I just love that. And so, um, so I often recommend that book to people or, or any of his books, to be honest with you. Number five, was there a vulnerability you once hid within that became your superpower? Uh, probably this, uh, probably this idea of imposter syndrome, uh, insecurity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I think, um, I think I was able to leverage insecurity to my advantage by turning it into, okay, I'm obviously doing something right here. Okay. So this insecurity, what does it actually mean? Uh, and if I feel insecure, can I actually use it to up my game? And that's exactly what I did. I, every time I was around people, my whole career, I was like, well, I, these people are so good. Okay. I got up my game, up my game. I think that's it. Number six, what's one thing you've learned about failure? That's, that's, it's necessary and it's good. Um, uh, I, I don't like roller coasters, but I always ask people <laughs> who love roller coasters, how many of you would like to go on a roller coaster that only went up? Okay. No one. Okay. <laughs> roller coasters are fun because they go up and down and loop to loop and things like that. Okay. Life is the same way and life is going to be a series of up and downs and, and you can learn it's the downs oftentimes that create the juice and the spice of life as well. If we let them, obviously there are some really bad downs, but you know, if we can use those downs to grow, that's, that's great. Mm. Uh, number seven, if you could sit on a park bench and have a conversation with someone alive or dead, who would it be? Carl Sagan. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I just, I love space. I love the way he thinks. So, you know, watch him on YouTube all the time. Yeah. Or Richard, Richard Feynman is a really mm. interesting guy too. <laughs> yeah. Number eight, what tool or resource best helps you run your life or your business? Ask better questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Number nine, share one thing on your bucket list. Uh, I want to get my pilot's license. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's, been, it's been all these years. I wanted to be a pilot and I'm still not, I still don't have my license. So yeah. that will happen. You can achieve the Top Gun dream for me by just get <laughs> yeah, it done, Rich. At least in a Cessna. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, so. And final question, what's one thing you do to win the day? Um, I, 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 I'm grateful every day. I hug my kids, kiss my kids, hug my wife, kiss my wife. I'm, gra- I'm enormously grateful for where I am now. Um, and if, if, if things stopped now, if someone says, Hey, I'm sorry, you're not going to, you're not going to, you're not going to go any further in terms of any more success. You're just going to stay steady. I'd be fine with it. I really would. You know, I, I'd be, I'd find something else to do, I guess, but you know, I'm, I'm constantly grateful. And I think gratitude puts you in such a great state. And by the way, there's, Huberman's talked about it. There's powerful neurobiology that happens when we're truly grateful and it can literally lift us out of some of the most depressive uh, moods and states. So I try to be grateful. Absolutely. Power of gratitude. Well, there are a bunch of ways to connect with Rich and we'll link to all of these in the show notes. You can visit his website, theattributes.com. Connect with him on Instagram at rich underscore Divini and grab a copy of his epic book, The Attributes on Amazon. Again, all of that and more will be linked in the show notes. Rich, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, James. It's a pleasure finally to get here. So thanks for having me. (laughs) Thanks for joining me on another episode of the Win The Day podcast. We want to hear your thoughts on what we covered today, so drop a comment on the YouTube version of this episode with your favorite takeaway, any questions you have, or what actions you'll be taking as a result of what was shared in this episode. And if you found value in the Win The Day podcast, leave a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You'll find a link to both of those in the show notes. It'll only take you a few seconds, and more ratings really helps other people discover the show so they can get the mindset upgrade they need, and we can bring more winners into the Win The Day movement. That's all for this episode. Get out there and win the day. Until next time, onwards and upwards, always.